if you really think about it. Like if you want to write a really a novel that is really funny and, and people respond to, you have to think about the hard things and just decide to laugh about it. I would hope without cruelty. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Andrew Sean Greer, or Andy, about the follow-up to his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Less. In the sequel, Less is Lost, readers return to the life of Arthur Less, a moderately successful writer in a comfortable and loving relationship with, spoiler alert, Freddie Pelu, Arthur's lover in the first book and his partner now in the second. Things are going well until the death of a former lover forces Arthur into an unforeseen financial crisis. Yet again, readers find Arthur on the run. Not abroad this time, but headed cross-country in a series of delightfully funny and uncomfortable literary appearances. Less is Lost, like its predecessor, is a meditation on aging and identity. And this novel is also a zigzagging story of America. Andy, welcome to The Right Question. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. So we're talking about Less and Less is Lost, and in this sequel, Less is Lost, we find Arthur Less yet again saying yes to a number of speaking engagements and appearances, not around the world, as we did in Less, but in the U.S. And there is a passage in the book. Do you have your book with you? Would you be willing to read a passage? Yeah, it's right here. Um, There is a passage uh, that kind of blends these ideas of what is a long-term relationship or marriage and this idea of the setting which is America. So I'm wondering if you can read, or if you would read, um, the passage on two... I, I have the advanced copy. It's on 233, starting with America, How's Your Marriage? Let's see if it changed in the meantime. <laughs> no, here it is. Yeah. There we go. Great. Um, I, I knew exactly what you were talking about. Awesome. And you can just, um, yeah, read that that paragraph, I think, would be good. Great. America, how's your marriage? Your 250-year-old promise to stay together in sickness and in health. First 13 states, then more and more until 50 of you had taken the vow. Like so many marriages, I know it was not for love. I know it was for tax reasons. But soon you all found yourselves financially entwined with shared debts and land purchases and grandiose visions of the future, yet somehow from the beginning, essentially at odds ancient grudges. That split you had, that still stings, doesn't it? Who betrayed whom in the end? I hear you tried going sober. That didn't last, did it? So how's it going, America? Do you ever dream of each being on your own again? Never having to be part of someone else's family squabble, never having to share a penny, never having to bear with someone else's gun hobby or car obsession or nutrition craze. Tell me honestly, because I have contemplated marriage and wonder if it can't work for you, can it work for any of us? I love that. Um, What were you setting out to learn about this country, about yourself, about your protagonist, Arthur Less, by writing this book and from going, as I understand it, on your own road trip adventure around the States? Uh, That's a great question because um, it cuts to exactly what 
I do when I'm working on a novel, which is I start off with something I don't understand and have questions about and plan not to understand, but to, but to further my ignorance. So I, I was really baffled and grief-stricken and confused about my country in the, around 2016, which was when I started doing research for a book. I didn't think it would have Arthur Less in it. So yeah, I rented an RV twice um, for two three-week trips through the Southwest and the Deep South because I'd never been there. And I thought I should go and just write down what I see without a, because I think as a novelist, I'm not going in with a, a political idea that's, that doesn't interest me. I'm going in uh, for ideas about people and, and a lot of it is um, su- trying to surprise myself with my own preconceptions and, um, and be open to what I didn't expect. So it sounds like you went into at least your own research and your own road trip based on political experiences, right? You went in based on kind of the political turmoil that was taking place here in the States at that time, but that wasn't what you wanted to get from that experience. You wanted to you wanted it more to be a social experiment, so to speak. Yeah, or maybe it's something like if um, there's a you have a huge family and the other side of the family isn't talking to your side, but one of your distant cousins invites you to a wedding and no one recognizes you, you go not to start an argument, to be like, I wonder what they're like at a wedding. You know, you're not going to start anything. You're just trying to gather information about something that's um, that you, you don't have information on because you've been kept apart. So then in your own uh, road trip, your own adventure, your own traveling, how did you um, structure that trip? Were you like Arthur Less saying yes to all of these appearances or how did, how did that happen? I, there were no appearances. That I had no invitations. But I just, um, I made a mistake in the Southwest, which is that I invited friends to come with me, and which made it really fun and full of all kinds of incidents that they brought along. But it made it bad for me as a writer because I wasn't, I have to be kind of so alone that I'm sitting in a bar and taking notes on the glassware and the mugs and the dollar bills on the ceiling. Otherwise, I just pay attention to my friend. Um, so in the South, I went alone. But I had no itinerary. I had two rules. Uh, the first rule was that I could only go to small towns. I, I didn't have a population number, but I knew what I went by small town. And I had to sit at the bar or the counter um, and talk to the server there or the people next to me and not about politics or even about their lives, but just like anything going on in the town or anything they wanted to. Were you surprised by the people that you met on this trip? What surprised me the most is I don't think of myself as, as, a, as a great interviewer, but within seconds, people would tell me the most difficult story of their lives. I think because I was a stranger, um, they would instantly tell me about the kid they had to give up to ad- for adoption or some hard thing. They would, it would not take long at all. And these are not people who are deep into their cups. This is like morning coffee. <laughs> and I would get all this stuff, which honestly for me is not, I, I don't use as a novelist. I, I don't take other people's stories, but I take their jewelry, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm like a cat burglar. I don't take the mansion. I take everything in it. 
And it sounds a little bit like you take the discomfort or whatever feelings you as an outsider are feeling into the scenes. Yeah, because I think it was this was true in, in less that I my I again I had a rule which was that I couldn't make fun of the people in the country he was going to because they're normal. Um Arthur Less is the one who's out of place and has expectations about how you're supposed to use a subway system. And if you can't do it, it's because he's wrong, not because it's a bad subway system. So I felt the same way, which is which kept me from from a lot of judgment. I would realize like I'm, you know, when you, you're in a strange bar and there's two bathrooms and one has a pig and one has a moose and you're like, which is male and female? <laughs> you know, you're like, you're like, they know it's clear to them, you know, it's the moose or something like that. But you have to think, what is within me that doesn't understand this gender separation? I want to ask you about how you came to the idea of making Freddie and again, this is Arthur's lover um, in the first novel and his partner in the second, kind of this omniscient narrator who's following Arthur throughout his travels. Was he always throughout the process of your writing, you know, the writing of your first book and then the second? Was he always going to be the narrator or did that come later? He was, after a few false starts and less, then I knew exactly what I wanted to do, which was to have this hidden narrator. I'm not the first person to do this. Um, Nabokov does it in Penin, and other writers do too. And I always love it. Um, and it allows you to have um, to have this false omniscient narrator. Now, I, which I really enjoy. And then for Less Is Lost, because I already had, I had the the. I inherited the the narrator, and now the narrator wasn't hidden at all, but had still had this omniscient quality, which I think some readers might think, how would he know all these things? And the answer is he he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it's the joke. He's telling it as if he knew all these things, but he's he's just uh, the the bystander imagining. And so it allows him to be. And I love it because I could do anything, I realized. I could go all the way out in a Victorian way. I can address the reader. Um, I can go first person in Freddie's feelings about what's going on. He can tell things that Arthur Less doesn't know, and yet he seems to know everything Arthur Less does know. And so it allowed me a lot of, a lot of flexibility and, and joy in writing it. I think if you have a really great narrator, you can just keep making pages. Even if you throw some out, you can go forward. That's a really good point. And, you know, these books are comedies and, you know, there are so many awkward moments. There are kind of like these slapsticky physical comedy moments throughout these books. But, you know, you're speaking to this idea of balance and there are a number of very kind of serious undercurrents to these books, you know, in Less is Lost. One of those undercurrents is certainly death, but they're both very, even despite, I don't know if despite is the word, but I'm going to use it. Even despite their comedy, they're both very earnest love stories. And they're also these stories of men getting older, stories of a gay man getting older, but not really having anyone to look to, to know how that works, how getting older happens. And I think you've spoken before about kind of this lost generation of men. You've got closeted gay men. You've got men who are lost to the AIDS crisis. I'm wondering if you will speak to that part of Arthur's character, again, as we know him through Freddie, but that part of these books that might not be the loudest parts of the books, but certainly are part of their histories. And, you know, they're 
they're histories that Arthur inherits. Thank you for that question, because that is what the books are really about for me. And the fact that they're funny and lighthearted is is a way, is the only way I could manage to get at some really um, heartbreaking ideas for me. Because I think the only way that as, as gay men we've written about the AIDS era is as tragedy or as, as anger. And I thought we have a lot of books about it like that. And I, I just thought, what else is there to say? And, and that the premise of these books is, as you said, that there is no generation ahead of us to see how to grow old. And here we are, I'm 52 now. I certainly have met men in their 60s and 70s, but I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do or dress, which is sad because it's because they all died. You know, and that is something that other groups don't experience. They have elders, they have role models. They may not admire them. They want to, may want to change their path, but it's something that I thought was unique and interesting. Deeply sad, but also therefore a little funny as you watch us into our stumbling our way into our fifties. Um, and that, that's what underlies a lot of this is a lot of it is me thinking, I don't want to write the, the, the gay novel that's about going to the discos and there's a sassy drag queen. And it, like, I think there's a lot of that. And it's the reason you don't see Arthur Less in a big city, because I didn't want to ever have him in a big dance club and then soap bubbles come out because it's, that's not the book. I, not it, I, I don't want to need to explore that. That's been explored. I wanted to talk about what else is there about being gay in America that would interest any reader because it's peculiar. Um, there's this going forward. I mean, I dress bizarrely because I don't know how a 52-year-old man is supposed to dress. So like, I, I'm i like, let's, let's go for a clown. <laughs> uh, but then also in the book, you see a lot of Arthur Les being incredibly awkward. And there's interactions that I think a, a lot of people aren't quite aware of where People, either people, they can't quite tell you're gay, but something's different about you, you know, and, and they're, they can't place it. It's like being a foreigner. But in fact, literally in the book, which happened to me, I was in uh, Arkansas checking into an RV camp and the woman said, now you're not from here, are you? And I said, no, I'm from Maryland. And she said, well, now I thought you were from the Netherlands. And I was like, What? I'm American, but she had she had written me off as American because there was something she couldn't quite put her finger on it <laughs> that was not typical about me. And I and a lot of gay people know what that is, which is that they're hearing she she's picking up something that she's not aware enough of of queer people to know that's what she's getting, the signal she's picking up, but there's something, you know, where they're like you remind me of my nephew. And uh I know something about your nephew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I thought that was so smart where you have Arthur have this interaction at the RV park. And then that particular phrase, this idea of being from another place instead of, you know, being a queer man, a gay man, that became kind of a refrain throughout the book that Freddie kind of uh, brings back. And it was so funny. It was such a smart way to do it that this, there is this kind of outsider presence being Arthur Less, but there was that feeling of uh, discomfort. And, and that was the kind of uh, comedic trigger. I thought that was so smart. 
Oh, that's but I just took my experience. If you just triple it, then it's funny. You know, that's what I found. <laughs> Is that it was was that your? I can't imagine that there are equations for how to write a comedic novel. But was that kind of the way that you went about writing these two novels? This idea that. You know, it's not quite autofiction. These experiences aren't exactly your own. Are you just pronouncing them such that they are a little bit more, as I said before, kind of slapsticky? Yeah, no, they're not autofiction to me. I, 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 any more than when I used to write historical novels and I would take things out of the newspaper and put them in that those were those were reenactments of history. I'm definitely using anything I want to, but I'm paying attention to what's funny. And I am aware that the most, I, I never want the humor to be cruel. I, I just don't like that. And I don't think it's very persuasive anyway, um, which means that the joke has to be on me on earth or less. So I was very attuned to what was funny about what I was doing. So of course he's he's going through things that I went through, but he goes through them much more dramatically. You know, I didn't flood a commune or anything like that. I invented all that. But I did um, go into two different hot springs, um, one in which it, there was a sign that said um, clothing optional. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll just go without clothes. And everyone in there was wearing a bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that, that is great. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that is so <laughs> embarrassing, especially if you're not a young person and they're all like 22 and you're like, oh man, now I'm the naked middle-aged guy at the hot springs. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with novelist Andrew Sean Greer. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you want to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, we're talking about this idea that Arthur is certainly an outsider in many of these spaces in the South. And there are a number of moments when he, in both of these books, is confronted with the idea that he's a bad gay. And for listeners, I have bad gay and scare quotes here, or in air quotes. Um, he's an author whose books aren't flamboyantly gay and his public life and persona outside of the affair, right, that kind of um, is at the heart of the, these two books. The, you know, the, his public persona isn't super flamboyant. Um, why was his success or failure as a gay man one of the insecurities you gave to his character? Will you will you speak to that idea? Yeah, I find it hard to 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 answer it because it's one of those questions that I put to myself in the book and don't answer very well. But uh, it's but it's interesting that now these two books are out that I have heard a lot of people that the term bad gay has been around for a while. I think mostly in a joking term. Like if someone says, you know, oh, just go into your drag closet and, and get something. And then you say, I don't have a drag closet. They would say, you're a bad gay. <laughs> you're all supposed to have drag closets. You know, I don't have a drag closet. Um, this idea that you're not 
there's a way to be and why aren't you participating in the common culture, I think is true for any writer or artist within their community that they are, they are both of it and outside of it. And that they're always going to be a, a bad representative of that community because they are not at all the most typical because they're the artist, that means they're atypical. And yet they're the only one who can tell about it because that's their job. So it's a conflict, it's an artistic conflict. I mean, it's one that I have. I find it really amazing that I'm, um, I, am, I am now well known in the, certainly the white gay male community that I could be recognized at a, like a <laughs> pool party in Palm Springs, <laughs> um, which is bizarre because writers are never recognized. It's also the last community I expected to be recognized by because I'm not really a, a, a full participant. And I would say I'm part of the writing community. That, mm -hmm. that would be my, my community. And so to be, and the gay community is one that I've had trouble with feeling like I belong there since the beginning. And so now to be embraced by it is, um, it's a wonderful feeling. Um, but it's funny because it comes from having been outside it so long. Well, and just that there is this expectation of what a good gay man would be, right? Like that there is this image that all gay men hold in their mind of what a good gay would be and whether you are you fit into that image or without i mean i feel like you're, you you spoke to this idea that it's it's all um personhoods or communities i'm sure that you know there are people that feel both within it and without it but i think that um what was so interesting it was just one of the many ways that Arthur kind of confronted his identity at, in opposition to itself right like he's this awkward person kind of navigating the world and being told he was a bad gay made him confront an identity that like, I don't know if he hadn't been confronted with it, maybe he would have been more comfortable. I don't know where I'm going with that particular observation, but. Well, but also if he had been confronted with it, he wouldn't have had to think it through. Even if by the end of thinking it through, you reject it. Um, I think in a way, he's a bad uh, American, you know, <laughs> in the way so many of us are. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're, especially when you find yourself abroad and, um, and someone asks you if you're watching Succession and you're like, I'm sorry, I don't watch that. You're like, you're a bad American. <laughs> That's the most important show or something like that. Right. Um, that we're all supposed to, you know, all 80 million people are all supposed to be having the same precise experience to perform for people who are not Americans is absurd to expect that. Like, have you ever been to Texas? No, what, you're a bad American. I've been to Texas five times. You know, you get that in Europe a lot. <laughs> uh, and so it's just not um, not meeting up to, to, a, to a stereotype, yeah. in fact. Yeah, for listeners who are unaware, Les won the Pulitzer Prize in, what, 2019, right? 2018. 2018. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure to put on a sequel, and I'm sure that you've had this conversation with many people, but I'd be curious about what that pressure afforded you, right? You, you know, you might not have had any readers for Les, but you now knew going into, I'm sure, whatever you wanted to write coming off a Pulitzer Prize win, uh, that you would have readers. So why the sequel then? Why not um, leave less where he was with Freddie happily ever after? What, what prompted that apart from, as we talked about towards the beginning of this conversation, your kind of 
your your want to kind of investigate the politics, but not of America, the the social aspect, the people in America. I was not planning to write another book because, you know, less what I liked was proud of about less is that it has a very strong, firm ending. You know, it is not you may one can wonder about any book what they do after the end, but that one really ties it up. Um, and I was working on another book for uh, a year or more in which I had I had done this research, the RV trip. I knew I wanted to write something about the United States. And so I did all that research um, for a different book that was terrible. You know, I wrote it and it was just awful. And it was, there was a young man and then there was an older man and there was a van. Um, and it was just hokey and... and, and and there was a crisis moment where I thought, you know what? I already have like, um, if not young, innocent main character. And I've got an older character who I wrote about in the other book. I could send them in a van across Arizona. That would be funny if I used those old characters. That would be way more fun. And I just kept thinking about how much more fun it would be if I got to reuse things I already had. And there was advice that uh, Michael Shabon told me when I, after I won the Pulitzer Prize, he said, now you can write anything you want. And I thought, well, if that's what I want to write, then that's what I'm going to write. Did your writing of these two comedies, these two novels, did it change the way you write? Are you ever going to write the way that you wrote before? Or have you moved on from historical fiction? Or, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how how these novels have changed you and your writing process. I think I will never go back to writing a fully serious book again. And I just, it, I think from the outside, it looks like a bizarre, um, you know, U-turn almost in a writer's career. To me, it looks, I feel the same way that I did writing the other books. If they're a historical book, it's a lot of research. Well, I did research for these books. I did all this travel. I went to all those places and took a lot of notes and there's a lot of sort of funny wordplay in these. A lot of the comedy comes from the wordplay, which I felt like I was already doing in the other books, especially a book, Max Tivoli is a book with Victorian language, and that was really rich to me. And trying to get at or to ask questions about the nature of love, which those other books did. But then I found that writing a comedy, I could get a lot closer without touching the fire of sentimentality because I could just switch it at the end into something funny and the reader wouldn't roll their eyes. And so I felt like I've gotten closer to what I really wanted the whole time. And it's way more fun. Just to live with the people is more fun. Well, Andy, I have reached kind of the end of my my drafted questions, but I do love to give my guests space at the end. Um, something that we haven't talked about that you want our listeners to get from this conversation or or know about the book or books um, or, you know, something that's peripheral, something that you're writing right now. Just I want to give you space for that something more. I mean, I think that was such a wonderful artist conversation, really, which I don't get to have a lot about, like the technical stuff about how things are made. Um, I just think there are probably people out there who are, who are trying to write comic novels. Um, and because in these times, it's sort of, you can either go all the way in to the fact that the world's on fire, or you can try to be a sort of salve to what's going on. And I can only say like that they're the same thing. If you really, 
if you really think about it. Like if you want to write a really a novel that is really funny and, and people respond to, you have to think about the hard things and just decide to laugh about it with, I would hope, without cruelty. And I think we need a lot of those books. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Andrew Sean Greer, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Less and its sequel, Less is Lost, out now from Little Brown and Company. Look for more information about Andy at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. Our artwork was designed for The Right Question by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.